we have the call to worship. This is not just, oh, you know, we like to make things proper and formal and stiff like Presbyterians, but it also tells us now's the time to get a hold of your brain, get a hold of your mind and your heart, and think upon God and heavenly things. That's one of the important reasons why. Behold, bless you the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, which by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord, the Lord that made heaven and earth. Bless thee out of Zion. Let's bow our hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. Let us pray. We gather this morning, God, above, thankful again for your blessings upon us, that we were able to travel here safely, Lord, on a beautiful day. Uh, God above, we praise you, God, uh, uh, for the more freedom that we were given by the state now, Lord, because of the COVID being lifted up in that regard to the restrictions. At the same time, God, uh, we do not wish to uh, be naive about it, Lord. It's still serious for high-risk people. And so we pray, God, for continued health and protection for those in need and that we would also continue to be considered, uh, Lord, again, of those of high risk. And, uh, God, that we would have access to the things that they need and that we need to help them. We pray, God, that we would continue, uh, Lord, to be gainfully employed. We're thankful, God, that you have blessed us during difficult times economically, Lord. And although uh, the stock market had... Uh, Doing well now, that doesn't mean much anymore, as we saw last year, God, when unemployment was skyrocketing because everything was shutting down and the market went better. <clears throat> so, God, again, we are thankful for the work that we have, uh, even though we may have not the best job or the best hours, Lord. And so we pray to that end that we can get better jobs, better hours, better pay, uh, better coworkers, better bosses, Lord, perhaps for ourselves, a better attitude, and that we would persevere in our jobs, Lord, and do what we can to work well and to uh, make our company look good, but especially for your glory, to work as unto you, God, we pray. Help us, Lord, to take stock of those things and take stock of our weaknesses and strengths and our job, Lord, to be honest with ourselves and with each other. Our God and Savior, we pray, Lord, for the laws of the land and laws in the states, uh, laws in this county and the city, God, that they would uh, be righteous laws that are enforced by the Powers that be, Lord, by the police in a proper manner, Lord, unlike what we saw last year. Uh, we already have riots going on in other parts of the city again, Lord, and off and on and uh, <clears throat> over in Oregon, God. We pray, Lord, that they would be shut down, that the law would be upheld for the safety of the citizens, uh, for, uh, Lord, for consistency, for wicked people, Lord. Uh, many Americans, unfortunately, think men, mankind is not basically wicked uh, and sinners looking for ways to manipulate or get away and do their sins, Lord. And so, uh, God, uh, that probably plays a role and with respect to law and order in our society right now. And so we pray, God, for the trial coming on, Lord, that the truth to be revealed, not just there but elsewhere. But we think of that one in particular, God, because it is the highlights and uh, the world is waiting because there are threats of violence again and rioting and destroying a city uh, because they don't like what has happened, God. And even if the wrong thing has happened, Lord, we know that you will make all things right when Jesus Christ returns. And our response as Christians, and we pray as a nation, would be a righteous response, the correct response, Lord. And not destroying other people's, innocent people's property and lives and putting them in danger, God, uh, just uh, because uh, they think that's the way to maintain justice. So, Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray, God, that we would continue to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, both in thought, word, and deed, to understand your law, to enact your law, Lord, to encourage one another towards the obedience to your law and to flee wickedness and unrighteousness. Gracious God and Savior, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you, Lord, for your mercies that are new every day. We thank you for watching over us physically, protecting us, God. 
We pray that you continue to protect Christians across this nation, especially those uh, near those danger zones, Lord, in the difficult times, and economically as well, God, and especially spiritually. As we focus on this morning, Jesus Christ, our King, who humbled himself, became a man, became the Lamb of God to live and to die for us, God above. And there was nothing in us that required that, God, but everything that fought against that, Lord, we did not deserve it at all. May it humble us, God. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us read the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to Zechariah 9, 9. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let us pray. In this text, God, we see an amazing vision of the great Lord, the victorious king over the enemies of Israel, coming to them on a lowly donkey. You have, Lord Jesus Christ, humbled yourself the best sense of that term, to save us. 
Precious God, may this supper remind us again how you are a king, a king who died to save us from sin and Satan. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Obviously, if you were a Jew back then, you can imagine the great victories that you recall in the stories of First and Second Samuel and Chronicles and the like of David and others who fought the enemies of God and triumphed over them. This is the king you're expecting. And yet he talks about a king, a shocking picture, a shocking vision, a great and victorious king riding on a lowly animal and therefore himself being lowly. At a time, it probably scandalized many of the Jews. Certainly the pious among them were probably confused. In fact, we know 700 years later when Christ comes to earth, the disciples are confused about Christ. Christ has to rebuke one of them. And the others, of course, he gives them mild rebukes. Because they don't understand that he must come to die for them. Lord, you can't die. I rebuke you. No, I must die. This is why I came, to do the will of my Father. And the will of my Father is to die for my people. And so here we see, of course, 2,000 years later, we look upon the past of the record of the New Testament era, that it was indeed fulfilled by Christ in a most literal manner. He was on a donkey that this great king didn't seem great to the world didn't seem great to his own people, this humble king. What does this humility look like? Wherein uh, do we see it before us? Some people describe uh, Christ's humility as though he gave up his divinity. It was a a weird belief, a misunderstanding, Philippians and the like. That is certainly not the case at all. You can't stop being who you are, and God cannot stop being God. No, his humility is his giving up the prerogatives in the sense of the outward manifestations, the visibility of who he is, the honor that's required of him, he did not demand of men. He was even silent, wasn't he? And so we see many ways by which he is humble, and yet, of course, we know he was still God. In fact, our, our shorter catechism uh, the mentions has this question here, uh, excuse me, larger catechism, uh, how did Christ humble himself in his life? Question 48, how did Christ humble himself in his life? We read, Christ humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting uh, with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to the nature of man or particularly accompanying this, that his low condition. So it's a mouthful to be sure, and I'm not going to go through all uh, this mouthful, uh, but if you want to read some more details of what it means that Christ was humble, Question 48 of the Large Catechism. What I want to focus on is the end of it where it says uh, that the the difficulties he dealt with, the indignities of the world, the temptations of Satan, the infirmities of the flesh, whether common to the nature of man, that is, simply being man and the natural things that man deals with, the infirmities of the flesh and the like. What What do they mean by that? Well, they don't mean his sin. He didn't have flesh in the sense of a sinful nature. Rather, he became man, and as a man, he hungered. He thirsted. He was tired. Those can be afflictions. Those can be difficulties for us. Just simply becoming a man was an act of humility of the great king and lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, brothers and sisters. He became a man. It's like us becoming ants. Are you eager to do that? you want to hang out with the ants, with the spiders, or something like that? We would never want that for ourselves and for our children. It is un- unthinkable. It is beneath us. And yet, 
God became man, and we are but ants before him, less than ants before the Son, majesty thereof. It was beneath him to be a man in the best sense of that word. We often use that as a derogatory, oh, you think, that, you think I'm beneath you, right? But, well, yeah, actually, uh, <laughs> he is. He is better than us. His dignity, his power, and his honor, although there objectively were not there overtly for the world to bow down before him. He never called 10,000 of 10,000 angels. He was acting in humility with respect to his status as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He condescended to become a man for your sake, to waive the privileges of rank, as it were. This is what God did, just simply becoming a man, let alone going through the infirmities, as I mentioned, and the other difficulties, and, of course, the beatings and ultimately the death that he did not deserve. The manly limitations, as a man, he had limited knowledge. He had physical limitations. He had to walk everywhere. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He had those as needs for his body. He had nowhere to rest his head, he said. The great king who called the world by merely speaking could have snapped his fingers like we like to have in our popular imagination and made a bed for himself, a mansion of many mansions. He said, I have nowhere to lay my head. He chose that path. He purposely decided from eternity past to come humbled that way. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to save us. And yet he did it anyway. He didn't just become a man. He became an unrecognized man. Right? Already it's a a humiliating act to become a mere mortal. But he was just... Not any mere mortal. He could have been a king. He could have been a great prophet or something. No, he became a man even his own people didn't recognize. He was unrecognized by even the disciples at times. They they were so confused about him. They didn't quite know what to do with Jesus. His parents didn't quite get it. His disciples saw fleeting glimpses of the truth, and yet they ultimately even left him. He was mocked from coming from Nazareth. What good comes from that place? And he did it all for your sake. That's the humility of our victorious king. And he wasn't just a mere man or a mere unrecognized man that wasn't well known, that no one recognized. Oh, look, there's God in the flesh. He was even considered unsuccessful by the standards of the world. And those standards are fine as far as they go, because I want you to be successful in your job. I want you to be successful at home. I want you to be successful in your neighborhood, right? That's fine. But when it comes to the saving of the soul, God does not define success the way we do. His fame was fleeting. It came early, like a tidal wave. You read that in Luke and John. Many came to him. They were all excited. And then halfway through his ministry, they start fleeing. They left him. John 6, the great discourse of bread, where he talks about, I am the bread of life. Verse 66. Well, how I remember it, 666. After he talked about how the bread of life is only eaten. Or that is, only those go to heaven whom the Father will bring to heaven. The offensive doctrine of election. They left him. He was unsuccessful as far as the world was concerned. Even his own disciples fled him in his hour of need. He was a failure as far as the world was concerned, brothers and sisters. And that's a form of humility. To hide his victory that way before the world. That no one would, even his own people, recognize it. Jesus was even quiet 
before the lies brought before him at his trial. The text is very clear about that. And that, too, was an act of humility. He had every right to say, this is a kangaroo court. This is a lie. But he knew what his purpose in life was, which was to die for his people, to put, go through that humiliation, go through the lie, to go through the kangaroo court. This is our king, brothers and sisters, the king the world cannot grasp or understand. Jews didn't understand at the time either. This is our king who humbled himself. That's the humility he went through, to be man, to be a man who was unrecognized by his own people, to be a man who was declared unsuccessful, to die on a cross, suffer alone for you and for me. That's the king, that's the Jesus, that's the savior we have to deal with, who rather deals with us comes down to us. He has compassion for us, brothers and sisters. Don't let the world tell you otherwise. It is a victorious king, as we went over in last week's sermon, but a victorious king who humbled himself. Even now, you may feel like, I'm, I got too many sins. Christ knows your sins. He knew exactly what he was doing. He became man, an unrecognizable man, and a, an unsuccessful man, as far as the world's concerned. Because he's He loves you, and he still loves you. But what did he do? Well, I already talked about it. He came to earth. He humbled himself. He was a humble king, but he was a humble king who saves. That's the second point. He saves us. He didn't just come to earth just to show and display his humility. Look how humble I am, and yet I can do nothing, and I cannot save you. He does save. That's the accent of king. The humility we talked about is the first verse, the humble king, the accent and highlight the humility But it's also king. He is still king. And as king, he has power and victory. The humility does not take away his power. did not make him impotent. Rather, his great, wonderful providence and wisdom exercised that power through his humility to save his people in a way we could never do. In a way, in fact, we're not called to imitate that way in large measure. A humble king who saves... He became a lamb, a king who hid his glory and prerogatives as king to become a meek and lowly lamb. Of course, not literally a lamb, but one who is to sacrifice and die. An animal fit for a sacrifice, not an animal fit for royalty. To become a a suffering lamb. And that's part of the reality. When he became a man, the metaphor of this man who's unrecognized and even considered unsuccessful would be lamb. He became a lamb of God. He became lowly. He became one who represents you, who represents me, who suffered for you, who suffered for me, just as represented and highlighted and emphasized and enacted over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The sacrifice system, the sacrificial system, the sacrifice of the lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the baptizer said. And that's a humble act. But as we know, it's a humble act that saves us because it was the king behind it, the might and power of the great Savior of us all. The suffering servant imagery in Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 53, as we all know, going through that passage, the great detail it goes through uh, to paint for us and to show to us this Jesus who is our Lord and Savior, who is our King, who is our humble Lord, our humble King. Isaiah 52. I'll go ahead and read some of it. I have pieces of it here. I think I'll read a little more. 
Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his vestige was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had not been told of them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the dry ground that has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was unrecognizable and even repulsed, repulsive to the Jews around him. And yet he was king. He grew up before the Lord. God nurtured his life as a man, preserved him, protected him, and grew him. And of course, Christ Jesus as our Savior and Lord, as our King, was God's servant. This is the suffering servant passage. It doesn't talk about a lamb, but the imagery of the lamb highlights again the humility of our Lord and Savior for us to become a man, and not just a man, but a man who has sacrificed himself. A perfect man who didn't need to sacrifice himself. He wasn't being perfectly obedient. He didn't die because he was a sinner. He wasn't being perfectly obedient in our stead because he wasn't perfectly obedient himself. Like he was lacking in righteousness or something. He was the great righteous king of the universe. He was also God's servant, to be exalted, yet humbled and suffering for the sins of his people. A guilt offering for the sins of his people. In verse 8 we read, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Read this in the Old Testament again. They probably didn't connect it to Zechariah 9.9. That it says the king, the great king who's destroying your enemies, we just talked about those in the prior verses, is coming on a donkey, a work animal. And then this verse that says, I'm bringing a servant. The servant, no one will recognize. He bears our griefs. They probably didn't get the connection. We see uh, in John, for example, they, they seem to think there's a prophet. There's maybe multiple prophets, and there's a servant, and there's, they're not sure that maybe there's multiple people. It's confusion. And yet we know, even more clearly now, the amazingness of this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. It is the same person as Isaiah 52 and 53. The king is someone no one recognized. That's his humility, but it's also his power. His power is exercised through that humility. It confused the Jews because a servant of God who had done no violence, nor was deceit found in his mouth, as we read here, and yet he was punished. How can that be? Why is that? Punished and bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions, verse 5, and chastised for our peace that was upon him. He did it for us. Jesus, the Son of God, who came down from the majesty of heaven to the hovel of earth to suffer and die for his people, as graphically displayed in Isaiah, is here in Zechariah 9.9, described as our king, our humble king. And he suffered with an eye for the purpose of the saving of our souls. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That's an act of humility. That is an act of coming down to our level, becoming one of us to identify with us to be the second Adam and yet not with all the pomp and circumstance. He had it just for a fleeting moment. When he came into Jerusalem, he came on the donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. And they took the palm leaves and the children. Hosea, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
They didn't know what they were doing. Because it wasn't long afterwards, those same people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And his own disciples left him. It was but a fleeting recognition of who he was. It was more of a, great, he's a rock star, superstar, a wonderful person that maybe will get something done for us, get rid of the yoke of Rome upon our shoulders. They were more concerned about the economic hardship that they were going through than the saving of their souls and the coming of the Redeemer. The king of the universe bore our iniquities, our sins, our violations of God's law. He suffered as a man. That's humility enough. He suffered as an unrecognized man, a man without success. Quietly, meekly, like a sheep to the slaughter. He said nothing to stop the movement of the Jewish crowd to destroy him and kill him did not defend himself. That's the humbleness of our king. (coughs) Suffering was quiet. It was willing. But it was efficacious. That's the kingly aspect of it. It came to pass. It was strong and mighty to save, even though to the world it looked impossible and impotent. He is the guilt offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, all the offerings of the one great final work of the Messiah are found in him. And the Lord's Supper we are celebrating was designed by Christ to commemorate our humble king with an emphasis on his humility. But the efficacy is there as well because it says, eat and drink, eat my body, drink my blood, because I have given it to you. I have power behind my death. I have triumphed over sin and death. So that in taking of the Lord's Supper, Our weak and enfeebled faith is strengthened to grow, to stand firm during these dark days, brothers and sisters. When we feel humbled, when we feel feel cast out and shut out of our own country at times. But especially for our soul. It is for the saving of our soul. The Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of that reality, of the power of our King, yet through this lowly means of his life and death. Humility of our great victorious king. A lamb led to the slaughter. Our victorious king, nevertheless. Your sacrifice offered to the holy judge of the universe. Your lamb sent to the slaughter of the cross. Your king riding on a donkey to the cross. So that when we take the Lord's Supper, we can think of his humility for us. But also realize the triumph through that humility. Because we are saved and are continuing to be saved. And the Lord's Supper is here to strengthen our faith. So we get to heaven and we have our meal, the great meal of the family of God, the Lamb's Supper. When we will see him and the whole world will see him, there will be no more humility in the sense of hiding his prerogatives, holding back the greatness of who he is. Everyone will see it and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will see him in his full glory. No more humility, no more hiding behind the weakness of, of preaching, sacraments, of baptism, but in full force and greatness for the whole world be fully manifested. We long for that day, and the Lord's Supper points to that day. And it should encourage us even now. Let us partake of the Supper with meditation and joy of the humble King who lived and died for us. Let us pray. Our God and Savior, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for 
The act of Christ Jesus, as you prophesied in Isaiah, but especially there in Zephaniah, Zechariah, God, 9-9, in which we see that he is our king. He is not just an ineffectual priest who died and nothing happened, but he rose again from the dead because as king he conquered sin and death. He is our mighty warrior, Lord. He is our guardian, as we see there in Zechariah 9, 10, 11, to protect and watch over us, God. And you do that through the means of grace that you've given us, the preaching of the word especially, but even the giving of the sacraments. Help us, God, to be comforted by the sacrament, but especially because what it symbolizes and points to, Jesus Christ, our King, who humbled himself for us. Amen. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.